So hello everybody um, joining from both sides of the Atlantic. I'm Victoria Main, CEO at Combater Associates, and I'd like to welcome you to our latest Brussels Calling Media Debate. We're focusing today on the US elections, what's at stake for the transatlantic relationship, um, both economically in terms of foreign policy, um, a flavor of the campaign trail in this very particular election, and also uh, look at any big stories that may be being um, pushed off the radar um, due to the political shenanigans. First of all, um, I'm delighted to introduce our moderator, Victoria Espinel, who's CEO and president of BSA, the Software Alliance. Victoria is particularly relevant. She's served for a decade in the White House for both Republican and Democratic administrations. She was President Obama's first, um, she was his, her, his advisor on intellectual property. And before that, she was the first ever chief US trade negotiator for intellectual property and innovation at the USTR. So welcome, Victoria. And before handing over to Victoria to moderate this conversation, I'd like to introduce our stellar panel. From Brussels, we have Stephen Erlinger, who moved here in 2017 as chief diplomatic correspondent in Europe for the New York Times. After four years as the paper's London bureau chief, Stephen has held numerous other roles since joining the Times in 1987, including as bureau chief in London and also in Berlin, but the list is long. Sophie Pedder is Paris bureau chief at The Economist. Sophie is also author of A Révolution Française, Emmanuel Macron and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation. Sophie is a regular commentator to French, British and international media. Crossing the uh, Atlantic, Peter Spiegel has been based in New York as the FT's US managing editor since April 2019. Peter was previously in London as the paper's news editor. And as many of us recall, he was Brussels bureau chief for four years for, from um, 2010, covering the Eurozone crisis and the origins of Brexit. Moving to DC, Tara Palmeri is another so-called old Brussels hand. Tara was key to Politico's successful debut here in Brussels in 2015. Tara really woke us up here in Brussels. She moved back to the US to cover the 2016 election and then moved to ABC as White House correspondent. She's also worked with CNN over the years. Last from, but far from least, a former colleague of Tara's, Dan Lipman, has for the last six years been covering the White House and so for Politico. So Dan is really right in the thick of it. He's also a co-author of the playbook. Before I hand over to Victoria, let me say, please do ask questions in the chat. I'll feed them into the, to the panelists, into the conversation. Also feel free to tweet using hashtag Brussels Calling. Enough of me, over to you, Victoria Espinel. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Victoria, um, for having me here today. I am really excited to be part of this discussion um, and hear what this fantastic group has to say um, on an issue that is on my mind quite a bit, which is the outcome of the upcoming US election and, and what impact that is gonna have on a number of issues. But I wanna start off, um, since this is Brussels Calling, I wanna start off with a specific question um, to uh, any of the panelists where I think we wanna keep this a really informal discussion, right? So I'll throw out questions, people should feel free to jump in. There's so much uh, interesting experience on this call. Um, but let's talk, let's start off by talking about the potential impact on the relationship between the United States and Europe. Um, and I'd be interested in views on whether or not the outcome of this election, whether there's a second Trump administration or a new Biden administration, how that would impact the relationship between the United States and Europe. Should I jump in here as uh, yes, having done Peter, both Washington yeah. and Brussels? Um, I think it's gonna have significant impact. I mean, not only do we know that, that Trump is not 
I wouldn't say a, a, a transatlanticist uh, in terms of view of NATO, in terms of view of the EU. Um, I think Biden also is from the more uh, liberal internationalist wing of the Democratic Party. So I think even more so than, than Obama, he is from that traditional Atlanticist wing of the Democratic Party. So I think you will see him. And remember, he was the only, I think the most senior person ever to address the European Parliament from the US is, is Joe Biden when he was vice president. So he has that instinctive pro-Atlanticist uh, view. I would also just point out on, on probably the single most important foreign policy issue facing the US and Europe right now, which is Russia, not only would Biden, obviously, for, for obvious reasons, be a bit more aggressive uh, against Moscow, but again, within the Obama administration, he was far more aggressive uh, on issues of democracy and human rights with regards to, to to Moscow and the Kremlin. Whereas Obama, if you remember the whole reset, the start of the administration, where he kind of wanted to put the wars in in, in, in Georgia and some of the, the, the disputes in, in Ukraine kind of behind them to try to reset uh, the relationship with Medvedev at the time. Biden was very much a resistor of that. And it was very much, in the, when he was in the Senate, a champion of, of democracy in Ukraine and democracy in Georgia and the other sort of the, the, the former Soviet republics. So I think we'll see a real sea change, frankly, both on transatlantic relations when it comes to NATO and the EU, but also in terms of Europe as a region, I think we'll see a real, real sea change as well. Great, thanks, Peter. Other um, views on that? Well, I, I mean, I agree with all that. Um, I think there's more contingency in the way Europe would look at a Biden presidency. Obviously, as some people say, a Biden presidency would be a return to civilization. I mean, Biden's a fan of Europe. He doesn't see Europe as the rival competitor foe that Trump said he did. Trump never understood the European Union. He always asked Merkel and Macron when they were leaving the way Britain did. Um, he's always grumpy about it. Um, but Biden will be 78 if he wins. Uh, he's likely to be a one-term president, a Republican can win again. America's so polarized, um, and Trump has, has turned over so many tables. The pieces don't settle back in the same place as they were before. And that's true of Russia. It's certainly true of China. And um, while they may welcome Biden, I think they're nervous about Biden's asks of Europe. I mean, he wants a real U.S. European alliance against China. I think that will put Europe in a place it doesn't necessarily want to be. It is not the peer competitor of China that America sees itself as. Um, but in general, you, you know, Peter's totally right. I mean, Biden is one of the last romantic transatlanticists, uh, much more than Obama was. And um, it'll certainly be a period of good feeling and good words before we get to the substance. Uh, so I love the phrase romantic transatlanticism. Probably not a great campaign slogan for the Biden administration, <laughs> for our Biden administration but it's a great phrase. I, I'd be interested. So you said a few things there that I think were interesting. I'm going to throw them out and then let others jump in. One is you sort of ended by saying there'll be a period of nice words before we get to the substance. And I'd be interested on views um, you know, from this group on how long it will take to try to rebuild that relationship, if that is something the Biden, you know, if there were a Biden administration, if that, that's something they would take on. I mean, you also sort of alluded to the fact that there, there may have been a change in the relationship that will never go back to what it was. So I'd be interested in thoughts on that. Do people feel like the United States and Europe will sort of pick back up again? Do you think there'll be a period of adjustment? Do you think things will always be different? Um, or do you think things will sort of settle down to, the relationship, you know, that uh, that U.S. and Europe had under, say, the Obama presidency. I think I would say that, um, you know, just like after the Bush administration, people thought that uh, it would take a while to rebuild America's reputation. Uh, that came back pretty quickly with Barack Obama, and so I would definitely see that uh, as kind of returning towards uh, norms here too, and so. Um, you know, most people in Europe, they want America to be engaged with them. And so they were going to be very happy uh, to have someone who believes in the transatlantic relationship more. Uh, but it's still going to be pressuring them to, uh, you know, add more money to NATO. Uh, although uh, President Trump has done a lot of work on that front, even though his rhetoric uh, has not helped uh, you know, emphasize the importance of NATO. Uh, and so um, I, you know, I remember writing, writing a story 
um, at, you know, a year and a half ago about how European leaders and world leaders, they wanted Joe Biden to jump into the race. And so um, they, you know, have been anticipating this moment, kind of counting down the days uh, until uh, we would have a, a choice uh, in America on whether to give Trump another four years. And so I think um, we're going to have a, a quick comeback for America in terms of our standing in the world and especially our relationship with Europe. So I'd be interested in thoughts on assuming assuming that that's true. Um, and I want to dig in a little little bit later on into like the details of Europe and you know the fact that Europe is, as you all well know, not a, not a homogenous block. But to the extent that that is essentially true, do you all have thoughts on if you were advising the Biden administration, if you were part of the administration, if there is that goodwill, if there is sort of a sense of countdown to a reset, what? how do you think the United States should use that? What would be the most useful thing that the United States could do with that in terms of the, the relationship between the United States and Europe? Well, I think there's some obvious, uh, you know, symbolic moves which have already been announced by the Biden team. I mean, you know, rejoining the Paris climate deal, uh, rejoining the WHO, there's these sorts of moves that would show those in Europe who feel very strongly that that, that sort of internationalist, multilateralist side of the United States has been lost uh, and pretty much trampled over under, under President Trump. I think those sorts of gestures would be, you know, they're expected, but they would still be symbolic and welcome. Um, and then I suppose the real thing for Europe in terms of would be, you know, a trip to Europe. It's very complicated at the moment and uh, COVID doesn't make that possible. But the there is a, I, I think, again, uh, a really, I would say, especially in France, a sort of conflicting feeling between a kind of yearning for a, a Biden presidency and, can't, and a feeling that they can't quite believe that this might be on the cards. They had almost sort of not dared think it through. Um, and a concern that not to get their hopes up too high and a concern and a you know recalling that actually even under Obama, uh, the United States was already you know turning its gaze to other regions of the world. And therefore, you know, I think the Europeans would really welcome some sense that Europe still matters because I think they're very conscious that their expectations about Biden may be a little bit high and that Europe ultimately, you know, doesn't matter, doesn't feature, doesn't have the same uh, place on the radar screen that it that it used to do. So a kind of symbolic, a, a trip is difficult right now, but the, at least a prospect of a trip and of some sort of gesture that uh, from Biden that, that Europe does still matter. I'd like to ask- I, I, Can I just jump in on that one? Because yeah, yeah, I, I think there's one other big issue out there that hasn't been mentioned yet, which is Belarus. Um, you know, this is, there used to be a time when the U.S. would see demonstrations in the street supporting democracy uh, anywhere in the world, and they would organize like-minded allies to condemn crackdowns and really push diplomatically on this. We saw this with the little green men in Ukraine. It was, uh, you know, the U.S. had to step in to stiffen the spine of the Europeans. Merkel took a lead, obviously, within Europe, but it was Europe divided, right? We all remember it. It was you know, the Poles and the Baltics all saying, hey, I've joined these clubs, NATO and the EU, it's no good if you don't help me out in my time of need. The French and the Italians like, eh, we, we like to, to, to uh, make nice with the Russians. It took Germany, pushed by the U.S., to really take a stand on, on the Ukrainians. With Belarus, I mean, I've been aghast, frankly, at the West response to Belarus. There has been no one to stand up and say, this is unacceptable. Um, so if you're asking what policy the, the, the Biden and I would advise Biden on is, number one, remind the world that the U.S. stands up for its values internationally. We've seen this in Thailand as well, where the U.S. has said nothing about a crackdown on deputy demonstrators. Um, so I, I think in terms of policy, a number one is we have an opportunity in Belarus to show we are engaged in Europe and to stiffen the spine in Europe there. Um, but to Sophie's point on this issue of, of to show Europe it matters, I think she's you're right, Sophie, that under Obama, initially, remember with the, the pivot to Asia, right? There was sort of Europe is the old school. We don't really care about Europe anymore. All the growth and dynamism is, is, in, is in Asia and we are a Pacific nation. Let's care about Asia. What happens, I think, very quickly with any administration is crisis happens, right? Libya. Uh, Syria. And all of a sudden you look around the world and like, who are our allies that are like-minded 
that can help us. And immediately the Obama administration realized for all this pivot of Asia, you need to help with, with your traditional allies in France and, and Britain uh, to help you with these foreign policy crises. And I would also say on economics as well, you know, when you're facing China and, and Chinese efforts to settle, you know, put, put, put uh, sort of footholds in, in Africa, in South Asia, your allies economically are also in Europe. So I think this issue of, of showing Europe it relevant, I think it, even if an administration comes in thinking it's, it is not relevant, very quickly they realize you do have a very small set of allies that are like-minded and have very similar views on the economics, the foreign policy, the values issues. Uh, so I think almost immediately that, that that's why, and again, Dan sort of touched on this, why I do actually am more optimistic than perhaps even Stephen is, that we can reset relatively quickly despite the damage of the last four years. So I want to ask a question about European politics. Um, there has been, you know, a, a rise of nationalism in a number of parts of the world. Um, and there's a variety in, in, I would say there's both a variety of reasons for that, but there also sometimes seems like there's sort of a core of discontent that is similar um, from region to region. My question is, and I assume the answer to this is no, but I really would be interested in, in y'all's thoughts on this, whether or not you think the outcome of the election in the United States will have any sort of impact on the Nationalist parties and the, the support of the Nationalist parties or the trajectory of the Nationalist parties in Europe. I think, I think they absolutely will. I mean, if President Trump wins, um, which seems unlikely, but you never know, right? Um, that just gives them more you know, ammunition. It gives them a leader um, on, the on the international stage. It, it, it actually, it amplifies their voices. Um, and even though they are fringe, you know, they, they do espouse a lot of the same things as the world, you know, the, the country that is leading the world. So it seems um, that it would give them more credence among their followers and people who haven't started following yet. Um, so yeah, I think absolutely if Trump wins. If, if Trump loses, do I think they're going to go away? No. Uh, but I think they'll appear more fringe as we start putting out, you know, more messaging from the US that we don't accept this kind of um, rhetoric and that we don't accept this kind of um, you know, political discourse. So, um, I mean, Trump essentially normalized what they were saying um, and what they were doing. Um, so yeah, it, it, would, it would return to an idea that, that they, are, they should be ostracized, so. I think Tara's absolutely right um, because in a way, the populist wave, which excited my editors so much, has been fading. Um, and um, at the same time, if you look at what's happening to democratic governments in Europe with the COVID virus, none of them come out of it very well, right? I don't think any of them will come out of it very well because it's an impossible balancing act between economic health and public health, and no one's managing it well. Nobody. I mean, except maybe the South Koreans, the Japanese, Taiwanese, who are basically liberal. But, yeah, but well, precisely. But at the same time, um, that could bring the far right back again. Salvini's active now again more in Italy. So a Trump victory, I think, would give them a boost, uh, which is aided by the failures of normal governments to deal with COVID. I think you also need to be uh, a little bit kind of textual about Europe. Um, you know, each country has quite different uh, political forces going on. Um, I agree with Stephen that, that about the risks there, but if you take, uh, I mean, you know, up to a point you can call, it depends what you mean by nationalism as well, and in a way some of this is populism rather than nationalism. I'm thinking of, I, I would categorize Boris Johnson's government in the, in the UK, for example, as a populist government. Um, uh, if you look at France and the current dy political dynamics, um, Marine Le Pen has not suffered actually from uh, a sort of, in the way that um, Salvini has in, in Italy and, and the polls are suggesting that if there were 
a presidential election held tomorrow, um, she would still have a good chance of coming out top in the first round. That doesn't mean she's got a good chance of winning because you still have to go to a second round on French voting rules and then she would uh, find it very difficult to get to 50%, which is what you need to do to win, obviously. But nonetheless, to have a, she would, she, to have a, a, at a time when Trump is in difficulty in the polls and there's a sense that that sort of populist moment has perhaps peaked, it's quite striking in France how that's not the way it feels at all. So I, I think one just needs to be a little bit careful about how uh, the different countries in Europe, the different dynamics within those countries uh, uh, operate. So Sophie, let's stay with that a little bit. I, I wanted to, we've been talking a lot about sort of Europe as a whole, and I wanted to dig in a bit more than that. But let's, uh, I'd love to stay with you and talk about France and what you're seeing specifically. So how is the, how is the US campaign perceived in France? How, how is it playing out in France? Well, as I said, I think, you know, just until really very recently, there, there was a, particularly in the foreign policy establishment here, there was just a sense that one, you know, couldn't quite dare expect or hope for a Biden victory. It would, it's, it's been an interesting watching President Macron uh, dealing with the US under Trump, because if you recall, you go back to 2017, when Macron had just been elected, and he invited Trump to, to France. They first of all had that knuckle crunching handshake. Do you remember okay. the summit in Brussels? We all remember that. And then he invited uh, Trump to Bastille Day, to so the French 14th of July. And he, they had dinner at the Eiffel Tower and there was a military parade. And, and at some point uh, then the idea began to, to, to spread that Macron might be the Trump whisperer. And that continued all the way through to a state visit to the US the following year. Now, I mean, you know, it didn't really work out that well for him. Uh, it's very difficult to identify anything um, that he has got back for all that effort to charm, flatter, and sort of invest with Trump. They clearly still have a working relationship of sorts. They talk to each other at all, but it's been a huge uh, sense of sort of, um, you know, frustration and and an investment that hasn't really paid off. So I think there is... Uh, yeah, uh, a real a real sense of hope that things could turn around significantly, both in terms of tone and policy, uh, all the things that have already been raised by all the panelists. But I think this is sort of another layer to this, and that's um, whether or not Macron sees an opportunity to uh, establish himself as a sort of a favoured interlocutor for a President Biden. And I think there you really need to look at uh, two other factors. One is the, is, is the, the Boris Johnson-Donald Trump relationship, which has clearly damaged uh, Johnson's standing in the eyes of the Biden camp. Uh, and that could put in danger the relationship that uh, Johnson-Biden relationship. And the other is, of course, the fact that next year Angela Merkel will be uh, stepping down, um, and we don't have any idea at this point who's going to take over from her. So, if you're looking at who might be able to, who might emerge as the sort of you know relatively experienced leader, which is quite ironic in some respects because Macron's only been in power for three years and he's very young still, but it's nonetheless uh, possible to envisage this sort of particularly unusual and favorable circumstances leading to him asserting himself as a, as a you know, as sort of the, the, the person at the end of the telephone line uh, for a President Biden. Well, and, and even beyond the relationship with the United States, you know, when the UK left the European Union, there was a lot of discussion about this being the potential for a German-Franco alliance, you know, Germany and France becoming closer together, sort of, um, you know, being leaders of Europe together. It also appears sometimes that Macron has aspirations to be, in effect, a leader for Europe, um, or at least a, uh, I don't want to say, a, um, sort of a, spirit, a politically spiritual guide and kind of the inspiration for uh, the direction of Europe. I'd be interested in your thoughts on whether or not you think the outcome of election would change how Macron would see his sort of trajectory as, as a leader for Europe. Um, or would change his, his aspirations in terms of Europe specifically? Well, I'm guessing that the question you're not quite asking is whether or not he would feel that he a little bit put out by the election of a President Biden, right? Uh, you know, this idea that uh, until now, he's pretty much had a free reign to, you know, it, it's been cr a crazy last couple of months on his foreign policy schedule. He's been to Lebanon twice, he went to Iraq, he's been to Lithuania, 
he's been to Latvia, he's, uh, you know, he, he, he does have a sort of ability to occupy the space out there for an activist, internationalist, um, democratic leader, which would not necessarily be available to him should uh, Biden be elected. So I think, you know, you, you one can't help but see that there might be a sense of, you know, that space closing in and therefore less opportunity for Macron. But I think... Can I, you know, can I hop in on this just to... Uh, I'm sorry, so we yeah, just interrupt very quickly, because I think that we actually do have a model, which is Sarkozy. Right. And, and Sarkozy very much saw himself in a very similar role, that he was determined to reassert France's role as, you know, if Germany is the money, the, the, the paymaster of Europe, France was going to be the foreign policy, the international uh, driver of Europe. And he had a very good relationship with Obama and he saw his ability to pull Obama. Remember, it was it was he, he sort of endorsed Obama even before the election um, and invited him to Lycée and, and, and there was a, a press conference there. And I think Sarkozy saw his ability to be sort of the Obama whisper for lack of, for, you know, to, to use the same analogy for Europe as, as is, is building up his own sort of standing within Europe. And I, I suspect that Macron being a bit Anglo-Saxon in his, in his proclivities in, in, in uh, at least in his pre-political life um, would also like to see himself in that way. And, and remember, you know, unlike Obama or Trump or Bush or Clinton or any previous American president, this is a, this is a man who has been on the foreign policy scene for 40 years. I mean, he was chairman of the foreign affairs committee in the Senate. So he's not unknown to Macron and a lot of these other uh, figures. So I, my suspicion is that of not, you know, the reverse of, of, of sort of what you're suggesting. I think actually a French president who can show his his bona fides that he can bring the American president along and, and insert him into the into the, the process only heightens his reputation as sort of Europe's leading man at a time when Britain clearly is irrelevant in anything foreign policy wise uh, in, in Europe. I, I, think that, I, I think that's right, Peter. I wasn't, I don't think I was uh, suggesting the opposite. I was just uh, articulating this thought, this sort of slightly mischievous thought that is sometimes out there that actually wouldn't Macron find it more difficult to have I uh, share that thought. Some of that space. <laughs> <laughs> Steve is one of those mischievous voices, but always, <laughs> always mischievous, Mr. Ellinger. Yeah, we renown him for mischief, but uh, I think I know I'm with you, Peter, on that, and I think that you know there is there is just so much over um, overlap in terms of the sorts of uh, you know the, the, the you know the belief in the kind of multilateral liberal liberal order. There is just the, the belief in 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 trying to to really lead a, an activist foreign policy that would could be a very very productive working relationship and i and i and i you know knowing macron a little bit i think that he wouldn't uh, hesitate to jump into that role if he could be seen as the one who is bringing along uh, europe behind him if i may i i'll jump in here with our first question from the audience for anybody who's who's up for it um the question is, do you think there will be some um, domestic political dangers for a Biden administration in performing an immediate vote fast on issues like NAFTA, TPP, China? So how much would he, do you think, need to feel his way? And if that's the case, how frustrating might that be for European governments, which are increasingly focused on autonomy in a, big, in a range of big policy areas? There are quite a few things folded into that one question, but so anybody who's game to take it. You can take the, the top. Um, so I do think that it's not like he's going to come into office day one and be like, let's fix Europe. I can't imagine that that is going to be a big selling point either. I mean, maybe he, he'll definitely want to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. It helps the progressive base, um, you know, seems to, it would, it would definitely motivate them, the AOCs um, and the others, but I can't imagine, I'm, I mean, they couldn't even get the uh, TPP together under Obama. I, I doubt that it's going to be like the the, the first uh, <laughs> priority on the agenda. But um, and I do think that Biden does have to take a delicate walk. He has to, you know, take a delicate stance on this because you know he is pro fracking in Pennsylvania. He is the working man, Joe Biden, steel maker. You know, saying that he's going to bring us into the 21st century of energy. But at the end of the day, it's that like every man, working man appeal that is why the Democrats put him forward against uh, President Trump, because he has that. He has that populist feel, whether he actually, you know, executes that. I just think you might not hear the rhetoric you want, but will technical negotiations be going on? Sure. Is he going to want a few wins in that direction in terms of trade? Of course. But I can't imagine it's going to be top priority for him. Um, 
And that might be disappointing, but there's so many other things domestically that he's going to get to. And, you know, but I could see the, the Paris Climate Accord being something quickly that he jumps back into as a way to appeal to the more progressive base. And it would be easy because it's non-binding. Right. right. <laughs> um, it, would, um, it would make everybody, you know, and he'll rejoin the WHO right, and he'll yeah. rejoin UNRWA. I'm sure he'll start paying again for Palestinian refugees. And they may try to do a deal with the EU on WTO reform, which I think Europeans would or at least should like. Um, but I, I totally agree with Tara that, you know, trade deals are not very popular in Congress. Um, and I, I don't think that's good news, uh, even if Trump wins again for um, Boris Johnson. I mean, there's just not a big appetite in handing out easygoing free trade deals to anybody. Unless we forget uh, with the, old, the failed TTIP negotiations, trade that's deals are not particularly popular yeah. <laughs> in Europe right now, right? I mean, they, yeah. they basically died in Germany and Austria. Um, I, I think just, I agree 100% with what Tara said. I just I think we have to separate trade for almost everything else. I don't think we're going to get a sudden reversal in trade policy in the U.S. And frankly, Biden has never been an instinctive free trader. I mean, he's more of a union guy than either Clinton or Obama was. And he keeps yeah. talking about Green New Deal and everything like that and bringing the unions on board. I mean, he is almost an old lefty in that regard that he's had a very good relationship with the trade unions. So I don't think he's an instinctual free trader. On other issues, climate, you know, the, the re-engagement of the international system, I think that's a, that's a different case. I think he will be more international in that regard. Again, we talked about NATO. But on trade, I wouldn't expect a huge amount of, amount of change. And I'd also say that um, on China, both parties um, have seemed to get on the same page. Even though a Biden administration would not be as aggressive in terms of its rhetoric on China uh, and on some of the you know, details of their policies would be um, more uh, you know, pan, uh, panda-hugging. But um, in, on the broad strokes, uh, America's foreign policy community, we really recognize that China is probably uh, America's number one geopolitical uh, rival, uh, and they're not going to let up on China trying to steal our intellectual property all the time, and the FBI is not going to stop arresting people, and, um, and there is going to be uh, an attempt to keep uh, China getting held accountable, and so that's not going to change. And so uh, in terms of you know, 5G and Huawei, that's all, um, you know, I think a lot of people agree with Matt Pottinger, uh, on some of the stuff, who's, who's definitely a security advisor who is uh, very anti-China. And I think the Biden administration would continue. I don't think there are a ton of Americans who are thinking, uh, why should we, you know, should we really reward a, a country that, um, you know, was the originator of the coronavirus, even if it's not their fault completely that it spread around the world, it still came from Wuhan. I, th I think on that point, uh, Dan, it's interesting that actually, uh, Biden's views on China chime in many respects with Macron's, and Macron's been out of line with other European leaders on this point. Um, he has, he was one of the, because his, his, his European policy is based on this idea of, of sovereignty, of strategic autonomy, of trying to build Europe up into a block that can do more for itself and make more for itself. Um, that part of that is about being uh, standing up to China when need be. And he was quite outspoken about 5G and uh, the desire uh, for Europeans or the hope or the ambition for Europeans to do uh, build 5G networks um, by themselves. So in a way, he has already, I think, shifted the debate in Europe. There is a, a bit more of that now. Um, but, he, and he, but, the, but a lot of that does chime with, with, with Biden's line, actually. Um, not because the Europeans are sort of running along behind the Americans on this, but because they've come to that conclusion, I think, independently, or at least the, the French have, and in Brussels, I, I think Stephen would probably say that there's uh, a, a, been a shift there too. Yes, and, and, and I think very importantly in a slightly younger German leadership generation, um, there's been a big shift. I mean, Merkel's 10, 12 years of... I mean, she really was the engagement person with China, um, and that is not working anymore. And I think she even understands that. I mean, she's been so quiet on the Dalai Lama on all kinds of things. Um, but her own business group, 
um, basically drafted the new European Union policy paper toward China, which calls it a strategic rival now. And certainly, I think Macron's right. I mean, in 5G, the two big champions other are European, both. The Americans don't even have one. It would seem to me one of those times, if you could put Vestager aside, um, where, you know, Nokia and Ericsson could come together in an Airbus kind of way and create something real. But, you know, um, maybe Macron would um, support something like that. I actually have another question from the audience, Victoria, if it's okay to put yeah, yeah. them there. Um, even if um, Vice President Biden wins, which parts of the old transatlanticism are not coming back and indeed should not come back? And is the EU focus on strategic autonomy still appropriate or relevant in the event of a Biden win? Any takers? Uh, I would just say very quickly, I, I think it's vital. I mean, Europe is 500 million people. It can't be dependent this way forever. It's psychologically bad for Europe, frankly. I mean, I'm not saying you should get rid of the American nuclear umbrella, but um, Europe has its own interests, its own trade interests. It should have it, its own voice. And frankly, many Americans, I mean, this is something Obama felt and Trump felt. I mean, they really are a little tired of free riding. And they would be very happy, I think, if Europeans did more for themselves in defense terms, in lots of other terms, um, as long as it doesn't damage NATO. And I think even Macron, you know, for all his pushing, and sometimes he, he, he's leading and looking around and there's nobody there, but I think even Macron recognizes that NATO matters. They, he wants a better NATO. He wants more political NATO. He wants a more coordinated NATO. All that I understand. He wants an anti-Turkey NATO. He wants lots of things, but he doesn't want to kick America out of Europe. He just wants, I think, a fairer partnership. And I think most Americans actually would like that too. I think that's right, Stephen. I would say that, um, you know, but all that said, there is nonetheless a big conversation to be had about this, because you might understand Macron's uh, view like that. And he's always said, I'm not trying to undermine NATO. And, you know, his comments out there about the brain death was, you know, he saw it as a way of kind of trying to shake things up. And it was at a particular moment, it was literally, you know, America, Turkey, not talking to each other within the alliance. So there was a particular moment for, for that, that crisis. But, um, but within NATO, there are a lot of members that don't sit like that at all. And I would say, I would take the UK, you know, as an example. The UK is extremely suspicious of what Macron's up to. Uh, it feels that it's really kind of borderline dangerous, um, that, uh, you know, he's trying to reshape European defence in the French, uh, in a French way, a French-dominated way. And... Uh, really trying to undermine NATO, and I think that you, you know there are there are plenty of other NATO members who have also got their second thoughts about Macron's view. But it's a, there's a there's a big difficulty, it seems to me, conversation that absolutely should take place, and, and hopefully will take place, uh, would take place if Biden's elected. But it could be an extremely difficult conversation at the same time. Just to, just to agree with, with Sophie on this, I mean about Moscow. I'm well, sorry, about, Steve, ahead. you're just about the yeah. same point that I was about to make, which is I, having done a lot of traveling in the Baltics during the, the Ukraine crisis and people hearing my American accent, uh, the first thing they would say is, if we are invaded by the Russians, are the Marines going to show up? <laughs> and and I think there is a sense that that if the Russians start making problems in the Baltics, the Marines would show up, but the French military might not. And so a, a NATO without a American leadership, I think, is very, it's not a club that the Baltics and Poland and some of these others thought they were joining and would be very reticent to see a, a, a French-led or a French model uh, of, 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 of NATO, despite what I agree is a, actually the right instincts by Macron on this one. And as, as Stephen said, you know, I still remember the last major speech that Robert Gates gave as defense secretary was in Brussels, which I, I think, Stephen, you were there as well. We both attended, um, in which he said, remember, I'm the last of the generation who grew up during 
you know, remembering World War II where we all stood shoulder to shoulder. The next generation coming in doesn't have that instinctive memory of uh, Europe and U.S. As, as, a, as, a, as, you know, as an alliance. And I think you're starting to see that. And, I'll go, of course, Biden is a little bit older even uh, than, than, than most uh, – than his previous two Democratic presidents. Um, but I do think you're starting to see public opinion begin to wane uh, in the European alliance and that Europe does need to actually step up and, 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 and pay for its own defense. So let me ask a question that, that has been, been kind of a subtext, I think, of a few things Peter and, and Tara and other, others have said, um, which is the distinction between uh, the VP, between Biden and President Obama. Um, obviously, like during, the, during the, his campaign, uh, the campaign is referred to the Obama-Biden campaign. They worked together very well and very closely during the administration. Um, but I would be interested in, in thoughts on similarities, but frankly, more interested in thoughts on differences. How different would a Biden presidency be from an Obama presidency? Will it be essentially a continuation of many of the same policies or will there be significant differences either with respect to Europe or just more generally? Um, I'd be interested in thoughts on that because I know many of you um, have been uh, following and writing and thinking about um, these, these two individuals for many years. Tara, did you want to jump in on that, or I can I can start I us? Yeah, I I didn't cover the Obama administration as extensively as you did. I, I mean, I covered I covered the Obama White House from a national security perspective um, yeah. when I was at the Wall Street Journal. So if you wouldn't mind, I, I'll take a bite at this because what I think people forget is that there was a pretty significant division. And part of the reason Obama came president is because he came out early and loudly against the Iraq war. And and the Iraq war, not just the war itself, but what the Iraq war symbolized, I think, in American foreign policy establishment was there has always been in both parties this sense that the U.S. should play a large role in the world uh, to promote American values. And again, to use sort of the, the, the trite phrase. And again, that's human rights, that's democracy promotion. And it existed in sort of the, you know, the, the Dean Acheson internationalist end of the Democratic Party, and it existed in the Republican Party, eventually through the neoconservatives. And I think both sides got tainted by the Iraq war because it was seen as democracy promotion and human rights promotion was used uh, at the point of a gun. And as, as a result, any, any sort of anyone who advocated for American internationalism, be they centrist Republican or centrist Democrat, were discredited. And Obama moved into that, that, that sort of space, and that's how he became president sort of out of nowhere. Biden is very much from that liberal internationalist Dean Acheson bit of the Democratic Party. And there were tensions within the administration. If you remember, Hillary went to state. She comes from sort of that Biden wing of the party as well. Gates was still at the Pentagon. Um, he also comes from that sort of Democrat that, that, that was Republican establishment, but the Washington establishment. And you had these tensions between the White House on one side and state and, and Pentagon on the other. And Biden was very frequently allied with the Pentagon and, and, and the State Department. He is, in many ways, a liberal internationalist of that order. So there was tension there. And again, it's why Biden, this famous trip now where he went to Ukraine, where now the Trump administration is making twisting into, into three different ways. The reason he was sent to Ukraine was to he is the guy that the Ukrainians and the Georgians trusted to be America's not forgotten you. And so I do think actually a lot of that that sort of old school liberal internationalism Democratic Party will be will come back. You know, Mike McFall is one of these guys that represented that in the in the the the, the, the Obama National Security Council. So that kind of old Democratic Party view of the world, a view of Europe and the view of American standing in Europe, I think is going to make a return where Obama was never instinctively that. Um, there will be elements of the Democratic Party will push it back against it. Um, but I do think you'll see some tension there from what a Obama-Biden White House look like from a Biden-Harris White House? I would just put in one little caveat, which is Biden is actually a very reluctant war goer. I mean, he was against the surge in Afghanistan. He was against involvement in, in um, Libya. Um, and, 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 and that was an interesting moment, I think. So you know, I, I don't know what he'll do inside the White House. Who knows what kind of crisis there, there will be because, you, you know, luckily in the last four years, we haven't had that big a crisis that Trump has had to be tested on. I've been very relieved, I have to say. But... Um, and that's I, the pandemic, I, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Shh. We, we still have time. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry, Dan. Go ahead. I was, I was just, uh, you know, weighing on that front. So. so I think as is evident from this conversation, when Biden was vice president, he was very involved in foreign policy. 
are there views um, on Kamala, like what she would be like as a vice president? Would foreign policy be a focus? His thoughts on on um, how a Kamala Harris vice presidency would have an impact on Europe or have an impact on the administration? I mean, like most I think candidates who come to the presidency, the vice presidency, um, Obama himself, again, Clinton, even George W. Bush, I think it's a bit of a, a tabula rasa. I mean, she does not have a, a, a foreign policy record. Most of her experience, even pre-Senate, was in law enforcement in, in California. She was attorney general uh, in California and, and, a, and, a federal, and a state prosecutor in, in San Francisco, local prosecutor in San Francisco. So she doesn't really have a huge record. And, and her, her, even her committee assignments in, in the Senate were, were, were much more domestically focused. So I don't think we really have a sense of, of her, her role or what her role might be. Um, you know, you're not going to get a Dick Cheney or, or, or you know, even, even Biden when he, the role he played as, as a, uh, Vice President under Obama, just because they, you know, Cheney had, you know, experience as Defense Secretary and, and, and other positions in the federal government that Harris doesn't bring to the table. I suspect she will play more traditional vice presidential role, which is, you know, showing up at ceremonies the president can't show up on. But it'll be interesting to watch. You know, remember, if, if Steve is right and that Biden is a, a one-term president, um, she is, of course, the front runner for 2024. She will have to sort of build up some foreign policy bona fides and stake out a, a position for herself. So it'll be interesting to watch. But I think going into it, I think we probably, it's, it's tabula rasa right now. So, Someone agrees with me. <laughs> or disagrees. Eric, do you want to jump in? I just, yeah, I feel like the, the vice president is so ceremonial and like it, she'll just be sent on trips that he doesn't go to. I also just wonder how much he's actually going to travel to Europe. I mean, he's an older guy. He's in his, he's in his seventies. Um, you know, Trump certainly used vice president Pence as his sort of diplomat out in the world whenever he didn't want to go to G whatever. And, you know, he would send uh, Pence out there as a sort of, you know, diplomat, but they don't, it's in a, in a way they come almost powerless um, and handicapped. I just, I wonder if, and Paris will have more power than Pence did in terms of being able to actually make deals abroad. I, I could see her traveling a lot for him just because of his age. So I'd love um, to have to, for you to have an opportunity to sort of be editor um, of your of your institutions uh, for a moment. And and what I mean specifically no, by that is there's <laughs> Just just for five minutes, um, you know, there's been, uh, it's been such an active campaign cycle in the United States and obviously overlaid um, with, you know, global economic situation and, and a sort of unprecedented health crisis. So there's a lot to cover. Uh, there's a lot to read. There's a lot to be following. I would be interested, though, if any of you feel like there are aspects of the campaign or aspects of this election cycle that have not been covered? Are there stories that haven't been broken through? Are there, um, and, and again, either with respect to Europe or more generally, are there, are there aspects of the campaign that you think people should be more aware of um, or uh, aspects of election outcome that people haven't thought about yet or um, aren't being um, sufficiently covered? I always hate a vacuum, so I'll jump in here. Um, I think, again, you know, past this prologue, what always happens in the immediate aftermath of an election is we learn things about that were going on that we didn't know about. And in the last election, and I think even the last two or three elections, this has been about technology. You know, Cambridge Analytica burst on the scene about six months after the after the election. Oh my God, we they were abusing the personal data of 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 what individuals using to target individuals. Um, again, if you think back, even Karl Rove, the way he ran the Bush campaign, it was largely about for the first time the, the a party used big data um, to target Cuyahoga County and this block in Cuyahoga County. Uh, Obama, you know, basically put muscle on what Rove had had done and really used technology to 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 target, to motivate, to do voter turnout. Um, and that that fine line of what is acceptable and what is feels icky about using personal data to campaign to target and to i think that always to me is a story that i like our get our guys to to, to focus on because I, I i just remembering the last three or four or five cycles that always seems to be this, the story that surprises everyone afterwards um the other one again I, I'm, I'm sort of i'm the financial times guy so i would say this wouldn't i but 
the role of money. And, you know, it's what we covered during the campaign is, oh, Biden's got a lot of donations. Oh, my God, he got a lot of from $20. You know, what we, again, afterwards realized with Trump is the role of the Mercers, right? This this hedge fund billionaire family that funded Breitbart, that funded Bannon. Um, similarly, the, the Koch brothers, you know, again, the, these billionaires that, that have changed the way the American political landscape has has it looks not just the traditional donations, and again, usually we find out about that only ex post facto. We only find out afterwards the role of Soros, of the Koch brothers, of the Mercers, and so I, again, I would be asking our guys um, to say, look, let's now go back and look at how these wealthy billionaires spent their money during the cycle. Can we identify? You know, Michael Bloomberg has done a little bit more openly than perhaps, you know, the Mercers or some of the others. But clearly we have billionaire Wall Street guys who've decided they're going to deploy their almost limitless funds to change the shape of the American political debate. And I think that's going to be a story that we're not knowing at, as it happens, but we'll know uh, in six months time. Again, I would add that I think there's been a overcorrection in terms of disbelieving polls because most, you know, uh, the most accurate or like the most legitimate polls got 2016 basically right. Um, and so people have thought, oh, the polls in 2016 were completely wrong. That's not actually true. Maybe they were off by a couple of points, but there is a margin of error for a reason. Uh, and so with Biden's huge numbers uh, this year, it'll be interesting to see if that actually bears out. Uh, and if they do, uh, if they aren't wrong, uh, then people will believe polls again, and we won't have as many stories and questions about whether uh, these polls are to be believed. And, and if they aren't true, then there'll be a whole other sort of round of, of questions and reckoning around that. I mean, yeah, I think we'll things... learn more about the right, influence. I think we'll know more too about the influence campaigns that are going on uh, with more detail um, in terms of Russia um, and other you know, uh, antagonists to our, our democracy. We'll probably end up seeing a few reports on that and just general journalism will become more clear. And the only other thing I would, you know, we've done some of this, everybody's, but I am really fascinated by the obstacles put up to voting in different states because it's a federal country and the rules are always different. And it's very clever, and clearly the Republican Party is a minority party and knows it. So it's trying to keep vote totals down. Um, it's explicit about it. It's nothing. It's not an opinion, right? It's true. Um, and I, I would love to know more state by state, particularly in battleground states, exactly what's going on on the ground. Um, I'm also kind of puzzled how you do exit polls when half the people vote in advance, but. I guess we'll have to see. Politico will no doubt tell me. <laughs> also, it's like, you know, uh, New Jersey uh, is doing mail-in ballots universally. That's a first-time thing. I mean, if, it, if that works, that might be the future of voting. Another question from, from the audience, some crystal wall gazing here is required. Any ideas as to who would be part of the uh, key, key members of the Biden cabinet? Anyone to take it for that? Sure. Um, so people are thinking that Susan Rice, uh, Obama's former national security advisor, uh, is a likely candidate for um, Secretary of State. Uh, people are putting their money on uh, Michelle Flournoy, who was a top DOD official uh, under the Obama administration to be the Secretary of Defense. Uh, I think she'd be the first female Secretary of Defense. Uh, and, you know, uh, people think that Jake Sullivan uh, might be the National Security Advisor uh, and that Ron Klain, uh, who is a longtime Biden hand, uh, is a good candidate for Chief of Staff. Uh, and so they're all, you know, every Democrat in town who wants to serve in the Biden administration is thinking about what job they will want to get. Uh, and how to get that job. I just throw in there a treasury, Lael Brainerd, who's currently at the Fed and, and served in the Treasury Department under Obama. I mean, I, I, the names that Dan said are exactly the names I've been hearing too, but I think it's striking, you know, Biden has said he wants to to to, to reset the, the gender and, and, and racial balance in the cabinet. If you had Rice at State, Flournoy at, at Defense, and Brainerd at, at Treasury, you'd have the big three all being women, which I think is, is, a, is a pretty interesting uh, and, frankly, a, a sending a signal uh, after some of the misogyny of the Trump administration. So uh, I, 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 I am very intrigued by, the, by, by those three names at the big three uh, cabinet departments. 
Any other thoughts on this? I have to say, I was very pleased when I, as someone who gets that question a lot, I was very pleased to see it come in from the audience uh, to be able to hear from you all what you, you're hearing and what you're thinking. Well, one other thought that comes up is Julie Smith, who was Biden's deputy national security advisor when he was vice president, who knows a lot about Germany, speaks German, has been studying China. Some people talk about her as a very possible NATO ambassador. Um, or a senior ambassador somewhere. I'm kind of curious whether the kind of wise old Democrat types or, or experienced types like Bill Burns at Carnegie are even going to be in the mix, or even his um, homonym, Nick Burns. Um, they've all had very good jobs in the past, but um, it's not clear that Biden's team won't move on to a younger more diverse group of people. It's interesting to get slightly overly inside baseball on this one. Um, there is, to a certain extent, some of these names being leaked out, there is a bit of a rivalry from the old Obama team and the traditional Biden people. Uh, Tom Donilon is a case of that. You know, there's sort of this Irish mafia that's been around um, uh, Biden for a long time, both his, you know, from his Hill days. Um, and a lot of these names that we're talking about, Rice, Brainerd, uh, Michelle Flournoy, uh, uh, Julie Smith, who did NATO at Pentagon, um, these are kind of the young Obama people. And, and I think you've seen, and, and you saw this for Rice for Vice President too, is a lot of Obama people trying to get the names out because if they can get their old crowd back into the, into the White House, they'll get jobs. So it'll be interesting to see whether, whether it's for the old Irish mafia from, from Biden's Hill days or the younger Obama people uh, sort of reassert themselves in terms of getting the big jobs. Any thoughts on a next representative to Europe? I nominate Steve Erlanger. <laughs> <laughs> I think someone who cares. I mean, I must say, um, it's been very bizarre here, truly. Um, but there are people who do care. Um, I'd love to see a professional diplomat in Brussels for once running running this embassy. Um, but as as we all know, as one former ambassador to London said to me, welcome to the world of the uninformed. <laughs> In fairness, I mean, God, it's been such a disaster during the Trump administration that although Obama picked two um, political appointees, they were both very serious ambassadors to the EU. And um, I think more so than, frankly, even London, where traditionally you send a big campaign donor um, you know, you pick for Brussels because of the technicality of some of the relationship. The, the, there is a tradition, even dating back to, to, to Bush, who sent Seaboard and Gray to, to, to Brussels, that you send someone, although political, someone pretty serious to Brussels. And I, I suspect that will be continued or, 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 or picked back up when, if there's a Biden presidency. I know we're almost out of time. I just want to ask a question really quickly um, about COVID and the impact, if any, that it's had on your job either because the can't you know the debates have been held in a different way certainly the biden biden himself and his campaign have have uh have adjusted their approach because of covid um your own personal circumstances and take the question any way you want but has covid had an impact on your um your reporting of the election i can take that one um it definitely has because uh, I might be going out on the campaign trail more, uh, and I've only been, uh, you know, once or twice to travel for work with an national security advisor once to Arizona, and then the other time uh, last week to New Hampshire and Maine, where a lot of people criticized uh, Robert O'Brien for uh, going to these swing states right before an election. They didn't think it was the proper um, role of a national security advisor, uh, but I you know, we all are kind of working from home. I go to the White House every uh, couple weeks for briefings or for other other things. Uh, but I'm not, um, you know, I haven't, I'm still meeting with sources uh, for coffees sometimes and drinks. So it's not, uh, is that in-person source building and source kind of gossiping that uh, you can't really do that over Zoom. So I haven't done a single like Zoom source meeting. It would just be kind of weird. But I'm also pretty young, and so maybe I feel a little impalpable. <laughs> Stop rubbing it in. <laughs> um, we've been forced to really sort of re configure our entire campaign coverage, to be perfectly blunt with you. I mean, um, because, you know, on the ground, sort of 
campaign rally stuff is not the bread and butter of the FT to begin with. I kind of pulled everyone off the campaign trail. We've done selective sort of, you know, sent a report to South Carolina to do the Lindsey Graham race uh, and, and, you know, up to, to Kenosha to cover uh, the, the unrest there. We've really ratcheted back. And in, in many ways, you know, it's, it's, uh, do I say it's a blessing in disguise? I don't think I dare say that. But it has forced us to think more um, policy-oriented and issue-oriented as opposed to the showbiz of, of elections, right? And we've all complained about how so much of the conventions and everything else is just basically one big TV show, and we hate covering that. Well, in some ways, COVID has forced us to stop covering that stuff. And I think in many ways, the coverage has been a bit more substantive and a bit more serious uh, than it has been in past years where we get really riled up about you know, rallies and TV ads and all that kind of stuff. So we've we've been forced to get, like I said, uh, really reconfigure our coverage and frankly redeploy reporters to cover COVID. Uh, so it has really had a significant impact on the way we, we do things, but I'm not sure it's all 100% bad. I think in many ways it's been forced us to, to get away from the flash of shining lights of, of, of you know, the campaign trail. And out of that bubble too, which I think, you know, in many ways, I think um, fogs our, our ability to understand what's actually really happening in the country. And, and, you know, when you're in that bubble and you're talking to a, to a, to a Hillary Clinton supporter and, she, and she's so, well, Hillary Clinton is going to win. I, I've talked to six Hillary supporters and they're very enthusiastic about that. Well, they showed, they showed up at a, at a rally. Of course they're going to support her. So I think it's forced us to stop doing that kind of reporting. And I'm not sure that's all such a bad thing. If I may, thank you very much. Um, and, and I'm really reluctant to, to bring this fascinating debate to an end, but actually ending on a bit of a silver lining, bubble pricking point or two is, is quite a good uh, place to stop. So Victoria Espinel, thank you so much for bringing this conversation to life. And thanks so much to our journalist panelists for taking time out of your busy schedules to share some fascinating insights. And we've covered a lot of ground in this short period. And thank you so much to our audience. Um, with that, I'll liberate everybody to their day jobs. But I, thank, I really thank you to everyone. This was both fun and fascinating. So thanks, um, Victoria. Wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.